Hello, welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins. I remember thinking, this is alchemy. Whatever this is that just happened, whatever this might be, I want to make my life about this. That voice you just heard is Lyndon Penner. Welcome to week one of a two-episode edition of the podcast, and you're going to love this interview. Lyndon's story is amazing. But first, this is a podcast about El Camino, the Camino de Santiago, or the Way of St. James. James was one of Christ's 12 apostles. His remains are interred in the majestic cathedral in the Spanish city of Santiago de Compostela, St. James under a field of stars. The Camino is a pilgrimage walked by pilgrims. There are 80,000 kilometres of Camino paths across Europe and the United Kingdom. A pilgrim lives simply. You only carry what you need on your back. A change of clothes, some simple first aid supplies, perhaps some medication and toiletries. But the joy of pilgrimage is the simplicity of the day's routine. You get up and walk. There are no scheduled meetings, no emails, no phone calls. You just walk. You walk as far or as near as you choose. There's no one telling you where to go. You simply keep an eye out for directions. In Spain, it's a yellow arrow or a shell. In France, it's red and white stripes. Simple pointers showing you the way, on the way. Simple pleasures showing you how to live in life. Simple gestures showing you the way home, a long way from home. I always start with a quote. Well, the quote before this week's interview was written by my guest in his new book, Canadian gardener and writer Lyndon Penner wrote in an introduction to his new book, The Way of the Gardener. The conclusion I have come to is that there are forces at work in the universe that are beyond my understanding or comprehension, and that these forces are mysterious. And that's okay. Lyndon Penner is on the line from Canada. Welcome, Pilgrim. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to be here. You sent me a copy of your book. It arrived a few weeks ago. I read it in two days. I absolutely loved it. And having read the book, I already know the answers to most of the questions that I'm going to ask you. The best way for you and I to talk through the book is to revisit certain aspects of it. And let's start with how you first heard about the Camino, but I'm going to step in because I have a backstory. Going back to week five of this podcast in 2017, I interviewed Laurie Brown, who used to host a radio show on Canadian CBC. And she told me about Oliver Schroer and his Camino with the violin. Tell us your story the first time you heard Oliver's music? Well, firstly, I was actually, I had never heard of the Camino Santiago, and I consider myself to be a fairly well-read and fairly well-educated person, and I have friends who have traveled quite a lot, and I grew up in a Christian household where surely one might have heard about, um, you know, any of Christ's disciples going off uh, to a different land. I am embarrassed to say I had never heard of the Camino until I was an adult, Uh, and had been an adult for quite some time. And then I was invited to have dinner at the home of some friends, and they had um, Carol and Dan, and they had this absolutely gorgeous um, violin concerto playing as Carol was preparing dinner. And I said, what on earth are we listening to? This is so beautiful. Mm. And Carol said, well, this is is Oliver Schreyer's 
um, Camino album. And Oliver Schreyer is, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, a, he was a very well-known and very successful Canadian composer. Uh, he has since passed away. And when she said, you know, it's his Camino album, I, this, this didn't mean anything to me. And, uh, and I sat there with this blank look on my face, and Carol said, do you, do you not know about the Camino? I would think you would know about the Camino. I had absolutely no idea. Uh, Carol had done the Camino previously. She hadn't finished it. She got ill. Things happened. She wasn't quite able to, to complete it. And this haunted her. And so she said, oh, well, let me go get my Camino scrapbook, and I'll, and I'll show this to you. And so she went and got her scrapbook from her her first time around, as it were. And I thought it was the most fascinating thing. And I was totally intrigued with, you know, like, really, you walk for 800 kilometers? Really? Like this, that, and people do this? And this is a thing? And, and people know about this? And so Carol said, you know, I've always wanted to finish it. I've always wanted to do it again. And if I'm going to do it, I better do it now when I'm still healthy enough and strong enough to do it. Carol's husband, Dan, does not really enjoy the outdoors. Like, Dan kind of likes to have a drink on a patio. That's kind of about as outdoorsy as he really wants to get. You know, so Carol said, if I ever do it again, would you, would you do it with me? And like a fool, I said, well, of course I would, obviously. Sure, why not? Yeah, of course I would. And a couple of days later, she I can't remember if she texted me or if she phoned me. She said, were, were you serious? Would you do this with me? And I said... Yeah, okay. I said I'd I'd have to, you know, I'd have to save up a little bit of money to to do it, but yeah, I'd totally do this with you. And she said, "Okay, great." And then I'm not sure what happened, but I fell I fell through some sort of loop in the space-time continuum and then suddenly I was on a plane with her and I was going, "How did this happen?" Like, "Wait. What? What? What's going on?" So, that's that's how that came about. So, you ended up walking with Carol, um, you head off to the Camino. How long was it between that conversation and when you found yourself on the plane? That conversation was, I think, in February, and we were on a plane in September. Right. So how preoccupied were you with it in the course of those months between dinner at Carol's and getting onto the plane? I read absolutely everything about the Camino that I could get my hands on. Wow. Um, and also, there is a wonderful organization called the Canadian Company of Pilgrims. Yeah. And I, I don't know if there's an Australian chapter of that. I'm sure there probably yeah, is. Yeah, there is, yeah. Uh, yeah, so they seek to equip and, and prepare other, other pilgrims for yeah. the journey. And so they were having a training session, and Carol and I went, and it was wonderful and fascinating, and we got really excited about it. And so the only thing I didn't read, actually, was... Shirley MacLaine, the actress, wrote yeah. a book about the Camino. Yeah. And I was going to read it. I had a copy of it. And several people said to me, no, no, you read that one after you've done it. And I said, okay. And, and I ended up doing that. And I think she's a fabulous actress. I also don't think she's quite rowing with both oars in the water. So after, after having read her book, I just thought, my, my goodness, I, had, I did not have... The experience that she did, it, it feels, it feels very, um, it was a bit, I found it odd. That was, that's just my opinion. It Not is. everybody will probably agree. Yeah. Um, but I was glad I didn't read it before I went because I would have thought this is completely bonkers. Who does this? Um, <laughs> so I read everything I possibly could. 
And I started preparing. I bought the most expensive shoes I've ever worn in my life. I started hiking for a couple hours every day. I did as much to prepare myself physically and mentally as I possibly could. And I'm really glad that I did that because it, I'm a little bit of a control freak and I don't really like surprises. And so by being that well-read about it, there was less things to, to be an upsetting surprise. So that was actually really useful. That was, that was a good idea on my part. You, the book is called The Way of the Gardener and the subtitle is Lost in the Weeds Along the Camino de Santiago. And I want to walk with you through those weeds over the course of this podcast. And you begin the book quoting the great American artist, Georgia O'Keeffe, who once said, I've been absolutely terrified every moment of my life and I've never let it keep me from doing a single thing I've wanted to do. It sums you up because you're not a social person. You say you find being social excruciating. Did I say that? Yeah, that's, that, that is true at times. Yeah, what, why? It's hard to, hard to sort of articulate that, but I will try. I have always felt much more comfortable in nature than I have with people. I'm always really thrilled for a forest. I'm always really nervous in a city. I'm not entirely certain why, why that is. I was bullied a lot in school when I was a child. I, I never really found, like, until I was an adult and discovered that there was artists and gardeners and musicians in the world, I never really felt like I had found my people. Mm. And so I just find, you know, like, I can talk about, you know, trees for hours. And people, most people don't think that's fascinating. Most people find that a bit eccentric and odd. Or, you know, I get really excited about small birds or insects or seeds. And some people are like, yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. That's really cool. But there's a lot more people who are like, really? You like seeds? That's weird, Lyndon. You know, and I never was good at sports. I never, and in Canada where people worship hockey, this is a big deal. Like my poor father who just, just bless him. He just wanted a son who played hockey and could fix a car and chase girls. And that is not what he got. So like, I just never felt like people were for me. I just always really felt like I just need to be someplace with birds and flowers and trees. Maybe it felt safer. That was, that was always my thing. And it's not to say that I never enjoy being social. Sometimes I really do, but I'm also like, I am, I am famous among uh, several friends for coining the phrase, staying in is the new going out. Um, so I, I often decline invitations to be social because I would love to be social for an hour or two. Not all day, not all weekend. Not, I don't want to go on a lengthy road trip with most, even people that I really love. They're, so I, I don't know if that answers your question very well. It totally does, because I think you paint the picture of somebody who has such a deep love and understanding of nature that it paints perfectly the picture of you on the Camino. And I I can't wait to get to that aspect of the interview, because it's to me, it's fascinating because I walked the Camino and didn't see, I saw like 1% of what you saw. So... That having that wide understanding and wide belief is a wonderful place to find yourself. But another interesting aspect of it is, to me, you're heading to Spain. 
You're going somewhere you didn't speak the language. You're going to sleep in dormitories with strangers, sometimes 50, 60 people in a room. And you quote Georgia O'Keefe, I've been absolutely terrified every moment of my life and I've never let it keep me from doing a single thing I've wanted to do. You must have been terrified. I was, absolutely. I, um, and that was precisely what motivated me. I think it is so important that we do things sometimes that scare the shit out of us. Like, if you, if you are going to get out of bed in the morning and go live your life and actually live your life and not just exist, there are going to be times when you are frightened or anxious or nervous or uncertain or trepidatious or like there's all these different ways that very often I think people are feeling the same things and we don't know it. I think lots of people suffer from anxiety and social Mm. fear and, and they let it rule them. And I have always been determined that I'm going to live my life with intention. And even if I feel something uh, and even if I feel it strongly, I do not want to be a person who is ruled by my feelings. I think feelings can be very circumstantial. And I think you show your true self when you are overcoming something. And I thought, I can either let my fear and anxiety rule me, or I can put on my big boy pants and I can say, all right, let's do this. And yeah, it might be terrifying, but I'm going to do it anyway, because people like Georgia O'Keefe, who I deeply admired... And, st- and still do, of course, if she can do it, why would I not be inspired by that? Like, I love Dolly Parton. And she went into Nashville as a young woman with her guitar and songs she had written. And she went up and down Music Row and said, I'm going to get myself a record deal. And she has talked about how frightening and intimidating that was. And I think, you know what, if there's anybody in the world more inspiring than Dolly Parton, I don't know who it is. And I want to be like her. I want to do I want to do stuff with my life. I don't want to get to the end of my life and go, oh, is that it? I didn't really do anything. I just stayed at home for the last 89 years. Probably should have gotten out of the house more. I would much rather regret having done something than wondered what it would have been like. Wow, that's great. That's awesome. And I love Dolly Parton. I love Dolly Parton. I don't want to be friends with anybody who doesn't love Dolly Parton. (laughs) That's great. What a great line. I love that. I'm going to steal that. Okay. So you're a gardener. You write gardening columns. You appear in gardening programs. You've told us about your love of the outdoors. And the book talks about how you started walking an hour a day. You end up doing these big, long walks. You've got very expensive shoes. And you say in the book that you're not really an exercise-y type of guy. If you do see you running, it's most probably because you're being chased by something. And then you get into the plants. And this is a whole new ball game for you and for me. The reader was outstanding. You say plants reveal things to you about yourself. And I, I yes. that, as I said, is... I saw 1% of what you saw because I didn't see plants. I had this great experience. That's that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't see plants. I I, I saw the flowers. I stopped. I wrote a song and the first line is El Camino Roses because I stopped to smell the roses walking into La And they were, when I. Of course. The the pink rose and I turned over the label. It had a little sticker on it, a tag on it. And it said El Camino Rose. And I said, oh my gosh, how fantastic. So I did stop to smell the roses, which is such a. Excellent. It's such a pilgrimy thing to do. But 
Tell us about your history, your love of plants. How did it start? Where did this deep, deep love of of plants come from? Where, where, and when did it start? It. Um, I don't remember a time when plants were not in my life, um, and I don't say that jokingly. That's actually true. I think some families are very musical, and some families are very athletic. And I come from a family that gardens, so I think to some extent, quite honestly, it's genetic. I think that I inherited a gardening gene. So I, my, my grandparents are voracious gardeners, and my great-aunt's garden, and my great-grandparents, who I never met, were market gardeners. And as far back as I can go, people in my family have been gardening. And so I can remember my grandmother grew, and she's, she's still alive and well, um, and she's still gardening in her 80s. I can remember spending significant amounts of time with my grandmother as a child and her teaching me how to garden. But I also remember being a five-year-old and my mother putting zinnia seeds in my hand, which are big and sort of dusty and quite easy for little fingers to handle. And I remember my mom and I planting zinnia seeds, which is just an ordinary annual flower. And I remember watching over the course of the summer that suddenly there was green shoots coming out of the ground and they were getting to be almost as tall as I was. And suddenly there was these incredibly colorful, cushion-like, huge flowers that, I mean, as a five-year-old, they were as big as my face. And I remember thinking, this is alchemy. And I didn't, of course, know that word as a, as a five-year-old. But I remember just thinking, whatever this is that just happened, whatever this might be, I want to make my life about this. And I maybe didn't articulate it at that point, but I was always, always drawn to those sort of things. And because I didn't play sports and because I wasn't in band and I didn't, you know, all I did at school was read. I started reading, you know, I was reading way beyond my grade level. When I was in the fifth grade, I think I was reading at an at a advanced high school level. I read every single book in our library to the point that our teacher started asking me, what would you like to read? I'll bring it in for you. And so I would read gardening books. And then on weekends, I would go to my grandparents' house and my grandmother and I would garden. And in spring, we would go to nurseries and grandma would say, well, what do you want? What do you like? What do you want to grow? What inspires you? What interests you? And I would get out whatever book I had taken from the library. This, this is the perennial I want to grow. This is the rose that interests me. And then I started hiking as a teenager. I started exploring where I grew up and we would go to the lake in summer and we would go up north into the forests and I would say to myself, well, is this something I can grow? Is this flower that I find in the ditch something that would do well in our yard? Is this something I could learn I could learn to cultivate? And so by the time that I graduated from high school, I had already been gardening for a decade and a half. And trees were my friends. The people I went to, I'm not friends with any person I went to high school with, but I remember everything I grew in those four years. Wow. So plant, plants were always my friends. And then you develop as an adult an interest in history and in art and mythology and cooking and all of those things. And we're eating plants in our kitchens and plants are creating, you know, inspiring artwork. And we're using, you know, like the Japanese used cedars, you know, to build these magnificent temples. And, you know, the Romans would find trees in the fields that they learned how to grow and cultivate and Australian Aboriginals figured out which plants you could eat and which ones you couldn't. Mm -hmm. And plants were mapping 
what we were doing. Like this was always an engaged process. We sort you know, plants predate us, but we evolved alongside of them to some degree. And we have utilized each other, which I find very fascinating. Yeah. Gosh, what an answer. That's fantastic. You say in the book, you don't know everything about plants. In fact, you probably don't know much in the big scheme of things, but you do know one thing, that there must be a higher power. Before we get to the book and and talking about your Camino, tell us about that understanding or, or realization, there must be a higher power. I think I've always sort of thought that. I grew up in a very Christian household. We went to church on Sundays. We went to Sunday school. I always believed there was a God. I always believed in the resurrection of Christ until right up about the time that I was about, I think, maybe 15 or 16. And then I got really dedicated for a while. And then I decided that it was nonsense. And there was a period of time where I identified as an atheist, but not a very committed atheist. And I eventually began to separate the God that I learned about in my childhood with the God that I encountered in the natural world. And so I don't know all the answers. I don't know what happens to you when you die. I don't know what your spirit looks like. I don't know. I have no idea how that works. I understand evolution from a scientific point of view. I don't understand why we have created laughter or music or why, you know, we weep over tragedies. I think that there is you know, horses don't do that. You know, like chimps don't do that. Birds, birds don't, you know, go home at night and talk about their feelings with each other. Why do we have this consciousness? Why do we have this in every culture, in every time period in, in the planet's history, we have this burning desire to connect with this higher power. And I don't know if that's something that human beings have engineered or if that is because there is something inside of us that pines for that because it's real. I don't know. I'm not a theologian. I'm not, I'm not anybody who has any sort of theological training, but I have seen things in my life that I can't explain. I have seen miraculous things. I have felt connected in ways that make me think I am more than just cells and tissue and water. So I often like to refer to the universe The universe is sort of my catch-all term for whatever the powers that be in the universe are. I am not in a position to understand them or define them or put them under a microscope. So I usually say things like, the universe will look after us because there are forces at work in the universe. I don't know how my telephone works. I have no idea how technology allows it to be possible for me to speak to you on the other side of the globe um, in real time. Like, this is unheard of magic if it was the 1600s. Yeah. You know, so I don't know any of those things. What I don't know could fill a warehouse. So I just like to think I'm part of something. I'm part of it all. We all are. And whatever the higher power in the universe is, whether you call that God or, you know, the, the higher self or whoever it is that speaks to you, somebody speaks to you. There's, There's always the voice that tells you when you're doing something wrong. Animals don't have that. So, you know, like hawks don't feel bad when they eat a chicken. You know, like owls don't feel bad when they eat a mouse. This is like, we have guilt, we have feelings, we have reservations about things. And I, I think 
Does that does that mean we have a soul? Does that mean we came from someplace that is, you know, higher cognitive abilities? I don't know, but yeah. I'm I'm very happy with that mystery. And you know, I love Mary Oliver's poetry, and there's a line in one of her poems where she says, "I don't really know what a prayer is, but I do know how to be quiet and listen." And that is totally me in the woods. I love that perspective. I love that um, you've clearly thought through a lot of where your understanding of the of the universe comes from, and it, it's in the book. It's lovely. It's just such a fantastic read. But I'm just going to go Thank through the, the book to talk about some of your observations. When I read a book ahead of an interview, and I've written interviews for radio hosts for decades, and I always read with a highlighter and post-it notes, and your book looks like a Christmas tree. It's all lit up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> How wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a compliment. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So let's start with you're in Bordeaux in France. You spot a little European robin, and you say you adore little birds. You say what a terrible world it would be without them. Why? I think that birds do something for us. I think that little birds are important and they are a sign of life and they're beautiful and they, I think they make us look at the sky. They make us look up. Every poet, every songwriter has wanted to take to the skies. We have, there's so many spiritual analogies about flight you know, they have inspired so much art and beauty in the world. And they're, you know, birds don't ask us for anything. They give us music. They do pest control in our gardens. We eat some of them. They are just like, they are so diverse. There's so many colors. There's so many shapes. There's so many different forms. There is always a bird you haven't seen. There's always a bird you haven't heard. It's always so exciting to encounter a bird you haven't seen before or that you only know from a photograph. I just think, wouldn't the world be desolate and, and lonely without little birds? So great. So great. Um, one thing we share, actually, is greeting animals. On the Camino, whenever oh, whenever I saw nice. a chicken, I would say, uh, "Buenos dias, Senora Polo." Uh, good morning, Mrs. Chicken. It. Right? <laughs> and you also greeted the animals, right? I totally do that. I do that all the time. In fact, just yesterday, I said good morning to a tree frog. I always <laughs> talk to animals. Oh, that's so great! I love that passage of the book. is fantastic. Um, and in Bordeaux, and and getting yourself to Saint Jean Peterport to start the Camino with Carol, you found the French welcoming. It, it wasn't like everybody told you what it would be like, right? Everybody said, you know, the Fr if you don't speak French, the French will be very snooty and stuck up um, and not very nice. And I was, so I'd sort of said, oh, okay. And I found that to be not the case at all. Um, I found the French to be warm and welcoming and kind and lovely Um it was, um, I, I didn't, um, I've always liked Julia Child and Julia Child, yeah. uh, always spoke so glowingly of France and the people she met there. And I thought, well, Julia Child, I'm, I'm sure would not steer me wrong about the French. And so I, I loved the, the French people. I think just about every person we met in France was lovely to us. We stayed in, in Bordeaux in this little sort of holiday apartment and there was this wonderful, very nice young man named um, Ruben, who was at the front desk. And when we went into the into our little apartment, 
there was only one bed. And Carol and I kind of looked at each other and said, well, this, this will not do. And um, so we went back to the front desk and spoke to Ruben. And he, he was so funny and he laughed and laughed and he, he spoke English, but not, not a lot, just sort of enough to get by. And so we didn't realize that in the little apartment that the, that the extra bed is actually stored underneath the first bed, uh-huh. that they were essentially stacked on top of each other. So he came to our room and he pulled out one bed from underneath the other and we all had a good laugh. And, and then the next morning, uh, as we were leaving, then he came over and he said to me in perfect English, I hope that you slept very well. Uh-huh. And, and I thought that is so thoughtful. You know, I've never met him. He owes me nothing. He probably, like, he could easily have dismissed me as just another foreign idiot who couldn't even find the bed. And he didn't, you know, and that was so typical of the people we met in France, that they were all, our little cab driver from from the airport, who was this teeny, teeny, tiny, little matchstick-sized girl named Sophie, who drove us from the Bordeaux airport to our, our, our little apartment stay. And she tried so hard to communicate with us and... And Carol and I, in our very halting, brief French, could basically, you know, say our names and ask what her name was. And I think that was the extent of it. And she was just, she had a smile that could light up a room. And I, that was how I found the French. Just fabulous. You write beautifully, Lyndon. Thank you. You really do. Of St. Jean-Pierre-de-Port, you say, cobblestone streets and beautiful stone bridges and great bowers of silver lace vine climbing up the old buildings. <laughs> And I mentioned in the introduction about following yellow arrows on the Camino. And yes. You say you'll probably look without thinking for a yellow arrow next time you lose your way. Have you spotted a random yellow arrow? Plumbers use them in, in Australia. I, I don't remember ever having spotted a yellow arrow anywhere after getting home. But I did have a moment in a grocery store after I'd been home for about three weeks and I was looking for an item I couldn't find. And I had a moment of, I just need to find a yellow arrow and it will point my way and then I suddenly realized where I was and what I was doing and it's like that that is clearly not what will occur um so um so I did I did do that um but but no I haven't seen any here tell us about vultures you know vultures are currently the most endangered family of birds in the world their numbers are plummeting around the globe. Um, India, for example, used to be home to millions of vultures and is now home to just a few thousand. And I think because in Western culture, we don't talk about death. We don't address it. We don't teach people how to address it. Um, We won't even say somebody died. We say they passed away. If somebody dies on an airplane or in a hospital, we immediately cover them with a sheet because you know, we don't want to look at the dead. Like we really go out of our way to avoid dealing with death and vultures eat the dead and they're ugly. And so we revile them. And I have always thought, you know, vultures are not going to win any beauty contests, but they are magnificent in flight and they live, they live very interesting lives. The, the thermodynamics that, that they have learned how to manipulate in order to fly. I remember an ornithologist saying once that Vultures have learned how to swim in rivers of air because of the way that they take advantage of thermals and how they get maximum lift with minimum effort. And I just think they are so fascinating and so interesting and so misunderstood. And I think that's the case with a lot of things in the natural world. Like, you know, everybody wants to save the panda, 
try and get them to save, you know, an endangered tiny snail. Nobody cares, yeah. you know, or here's a rare spider and everybody says squish it instead of we should have a fundraiser and a benefit for that. Yeah. You know, so I think that I always like, I liked vultures and I did see them in, in Spain and I didn't get to see them up close. They were usually just, um, you know, a dark, a dark V circling up above. And I, I had hoped that I would see one up close at some point because I mean, their wingspans are enormous yeah, and yeah. I, I think birds of prey are cool. Um, an indigenous friend of mine, uh, she and I were talking about vultures at one point and she said, they only eat what has already died and they never actually kill. I think they are very peace loving. And I thought that was so insightful and, and such an unusual uh, and terrific observation. And now I sort of think of that when I see them, that they are, you know, they never kill. They, yeah. they take only what has already died. Yeah. We don't have vultures in Australia. And so crossing the Pyrenees, I was walking with a couple of French women and one of them said, oh, the vultures. And I said, oh my gosh, are there vultures circling over our heads? And doesn't that mean like they're looking or waiting for us to pass away or something? And they laughed. Yes. They said, no, what are you talking about, Dan? Don't be ridiculous. And you say when watching the vultures, in the book you write, I wondered if there were dead things in my own life that I should be offering to the metaphorical vultures. Indeed, we all have things in our life that eventually die, relationships, careers, or even sometimes dreams. And you thought about some of those things that perhaps you could have left behind to be cleansed by the vultures. Yes, I did. I don't know if I, if I came to any significant conclusion uh, in regard to that question, but, you know, very often, particularly in ancient cultures, seeing certain birds was always considered a sign or an omen. Right. And, you know, like we treat an owl, for example, very differently than we would treat, uh, you know, a turkey, for instance. So, Birds can have, can be, um, you know, full of symbolism and meaning and vultures historically have been associated with darkness and, and less than, less than lovely things. And so I thought if vultures circling up above is a sign, what does it mean? And if it means something, what action do I need to take? Is that something that at the very least, considering the fact that a vulture makes its living feeding on the dead, that at least bears thinking about, you know, like they play an important role in ecosystems in terms of uh, bacteria control and disease control. They do, they do great work for us and for the environments in which they live. And they're rarely appreciated if, if ever. And I think, you know, if there are, if there are vultures circling above you physically, is there something happening in your life spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, is there something, is there, is there something you need to leave behind? If there might not be, but I think it's a good question to ask ourselves. You're crossing the Pyrenees, um, you and Carol, you're on this amazing adventure and you spot alpine thistle. Yes. And you're, you're delighted to see I it. I was. Why? What? Tell us about it. Well, I didn't ever expect to see one in the wild. Alpine thistle, um, Carlina is the particularly beautiful Latin name for it. Alpine thistles have been 
sort of the holy grail of rock gardeners for a very long period of time because they're temperature sensitive and drainage sensitive and they're they don't always take well to being cultivated and so if you can succeed with one in a garden it's um it's an indication that you really know what you're doing and so i had seen them in photos before and i'm pretty sure i had seen them in real life um at one point i think it was in the denver botanic garden uh, but i never it never occurred to me that i would see them in the wild and prior to the trip i it i didn't occur to me that they're native to the pyrenees and so when we were walking along and there was just this beautiful little metallic thistle flowers you know waving in the long grass i went i know you uh what are you doing here and then i realized oh this is your home and and so i thought oh this is this is fabulous and it's always really exciting to see where a plant chooses to grow. So often we put a plant where we think it will be pretty or where we want it to be and not necessarily where the plant wants to be. If you look at where a plant grows in the wild, that will inform your decisions about where you put it in the garden. So some plants want to grow in shady forests. Some plants like to, you know, hang out in the scree at the top of a mountain. There are, you know, a cactus would not generally be happy in a rainforest. So if you look at where a plant chooses to grow and the company it keeps, it tells you something about that plant. And I looked at it and was like, full sun, sharp drainage, poor soil, you know, cool temperatures. I see what you're about, alpine thistle. That's, you know, that was great. It was, it was just, it's always exciting for me to see plants in their natural habitat. Yeah. So great. Outside Ronces Valleys, uh, you noticed plants that pointed to a dark past, you thought? Yes. Uh, the, na- the name means Valley of Thorns. And there certainly were. There were lots of wild roses everywhere with long arching canes that were covered in very sharp thorns. And I went, yep, okay, I see why this is an appropriate name. Uh, and as we were walking from there, I noticed a lot of trees and shrubs that, that have been historically associated with witchcraft and devilry. Uh, and even the occult. And I thought, you know, like, thorns are often associated with sin and darkness. And I thought, you know, once upon a time, there probably were was a legitimate fear of witches in Europe. Certainly there was in North America. Uh, and I thought, you know, all of these plants that have been associated with witchcraft, was were they associated with it because of where they grew? Or, you know, or was it because of something else that happened there? So you, so you sort of walk along and, and say to yourself, you know, what incantation was this used for? Or did anybody else notice that everything in this valley is poisonous? You know, like, it's just, it was an interesting observation to make. Wow, great. On the road from Zubiri to Pamplona, you saw flowers that you recognized. And you said it was nice to see familiar blooms. You talk about four o'clocks figs, squashes, and grapes. What is a four o'clock, and how did it get its name? Oh, that is a great question. So uh, the Latin name is Mirabilis Jalapa. Uh, Mirabilis, of course, meaning miracles. Um, it is closely related to Bougainvillea, which, of course, you uh-huh. have there in Australia. Of course. Love um, it. Yes. Oh, it's such a beautiful plant. Four o'clocks are native to Peru, and they are so named because the blossoms open late in the afternoon, usually right around four o'clock. Yeah. And they will last till usually about noon of the next day. Each flower lasts uh, not more than 24 hours. But they, um, you know, if you go out at around noon, around lunchtime, 
Um, all of the buds are tightly shut. And late afternoon, usually around four, new flowers open. And this goes on for weeks and weeks at a time. They're very fragrant. They're easy to grow from seed. They have been a popular garden plant for hundreds of years. Uh, but it was nice to see them because it was like, it's like bumping into an old friend. You, you travel to a foreign land and, you, uh, and you're like, oh, I know you. Um, it was, plants have always been my friends. And it's nice when you run into your friends somewhere. <laughs> oh, honestly, Linda and I could talk to you for days. It's just so lovely to hear somebody so passionate about something. But I invited Lyndon to be part of my Camino, the podcast. Times are difficult to manage between Manitoba in central Canada and Australia. And once I sat down to write the interview, and once I'd defaced his beautiful book with my highlighter and post-it notes, I realised I had much more than my usual podcast. So I asked if Lyndon would be happy to do a double-header episode, and I'm pleased to say he agreed. So that's all we have time for this week. My guest, the Canadian author and gardener, Lyndon Penner. The book is called The Way of the Gardener, Lost in the Weeds Along the Camino de Santiago. Thanks for your time, Lyndon, but don't go anywhere. We have the second instalment to record. In the meantime, Buen Camino. Thank you, Dan. Buen Camino. To my listeners, tune in next week. It will be another magical journey through the flowers and plants that lie in the ancient trail we all love so much. El Camino de Santiago. Lyndon wrote in the introduction to the book, the conclusion I have come to is that there are forces at work in the universe that are beyond my understanding or comprehension and that these forces are mysterious, and that's okay. Well, taking the time to stop to savour the beauty of God's creation, the flora along the Camino, is what makes pilgrimage worthwhile. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins. Buen Camino! Buen Camino!